0: As you're going there, let me ask you a question. Who do you fear most, God or man? Or, to put it differently, probably more precisely, who do you really fear, God or man? Uh, everyone fears somebody. The, the word fear in the Bible means more than just being afraid. It, the word fear in the Bible means living your life with a concern for what someone else thinks. You will either live your life concerned about what others think about you, or you will live your life concerned about what God thinks about you. You cannot do both. Your actions cannot be dictated by both what God expects of you and what others expect of you. You you cannot serve two masters. So, who do you fear? God or man? Let me share with you a sobering story from Ed Welch. He talks about a young lady named Sarah. Sarah was a star athlete at one of the best colleges in the United States. She wasn't just a one-sport star. She was excelling at three different sports. She was the sophomore captain of all three teams, and she was named co-winner of that college's Best Female Athlete Award. From the perspective of others, Sarah was flying high. But inside, she was miserable. She was worried about next year. Having already accomplished so much, she she knew that the people around her had really high expectations, and she was afraid she would never be able to top what she had already done. As Sarah told one of her friends, she wanted to be the best girlfriend, the best athlete, and the best student. But this desire began to create a great deal of stress in her life. Sarah decided she needed to give up one of her three sports, but she was afraid that her teammates would all feel that she was letting them down. One person said about her, she wanted to please everybody and she could not stop. She never said no to a friend. And finally under the burden of everyone's expectations, she took the only way out that she knew. She took a 22 caliber rifle and she shot herself in the chest. Why did she do this? Because her life was being lived in the fear of man. She wanted to please others. She found her security and her satisfaction in the affection and the approval of others. And while we typically don't go to that extreme, this is exactly how so many of us are tempted to live our lives. Most of us don't break down as badly as Sarah did, but again and again we find ourselves depressed and despairing, broken and hurting because we're looking to people to meet needs that people can't meet. The Bible gives this solution to the problem. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The only thing that will drive fear of man from your heart is fear of God. The only thing that will help you to live a life that is free from the burden of trying to meet everybody else's expectations of you is to live in obedience to God and His expectations of you. Rather than being an empty cup towards others, expecting them to fill you with love and security and satisfaction as you, as you seek to please them, we are to be humble, empty cups before God. And He fills us up so that we're overflowing onto others around us. As Welch says, and I think this is an important quote to remember, we are to love people more and need people less. We are to love people more and need people less because we're finding our needs met in Christ. Only when we have a big God before whom we stand in awe and in whom we find all that we need will we begin to need less and less and less the approval of others. Well, Here in the book of Exodus, we are witnessing the power of a big God. We are witnessing the unrolling, the unfolding of mighty judgments. We are witnessing a God of wrath. Have you reckoned with the God Almighty who hates and judges all sin? Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that, after that have nothing more they can do. Rather, he said, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When we begin to realize that it is God and not other people who ultimately holds our destiny in his hands, we turn our attention away from what other people think and begin to concern ourselves with the most important question of all. What does God think of me? Where do I stand with God? And though He is a God of wrath, we begin to learn that we are indeed important to Him. It's because we matter to God that our sins matter and that He must be judged. If we were unimportant to God, our sins would be unimportant. There would be no need for judgments and plagues and wrath. Jesus continued in Luke 12 with these next two verses. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, fear not you are of more value than many sparrows dear christian we are to fear and we are to fear not the bible gives us both commands fear and fear not we are to fear god in the sense that our lives are to be lived godward in regard to what he thinks in regard to what he says finding what we need from him living towards his expectations Our lives are to be shaped by Him. But if we do that, if we live in the fear of God, we will find that we can fear not everything else in this world. Through Jesus Christ, we are given peace with God. Through Jesus Christ, the awesome wrath of God is taken away from us. He has stepped into the bullet that was coming our way and He has taken it for us so that by faith in Christ there is now no condemnation, no wrath for us who are in Him. And this awesome God of mighty power is now our Father. Using that awesome mighty power, not in judgment upon us, but to protect us and to provide us and to bring us safely home. And when we have God for us, who can be against us? When we have this mighty God on our side, we can live with security unshaken by what others may think, say, or even do to us. Fear of God strengthens and empowers Fear of man weakens and cripples and paralyzes. So I say all that because this is one of the great effects that these ten plagues we are studying should have upon you in your life. These plagues should be presenting you with a vision of a grand and almighty God. These plagues should be causing you to humble yourself and to fear this God to reverence Him, to revere Him. You cannot treat the God of Exodus as a small God. You cannot disregard the God of the book of Exodus. Rather, this God is a God to be feared. He should be most important in your life and not the opinions of men. Um, As the psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So with that in mind, let's pick up with our fifth plague. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. So Exodus 9, beginning in verse 1. Exodus 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. It's seven verses. And here is what our God says to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Let's begin, as we do, with observations about this fifth plague. Let me just remind you first what's happening here. We have the Israelites, they are slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh is refusing to let God's people go, but God is being patient, and God is being kind. He has begun with small plagues. He has begun with with minor plagues, uh, plagues that were an annoyance, but, but they weren't necessarily dangerous, just enough to wake Pharaoh up to the truth that he must submit to this God. But Pharaoh is spitting in the face of God and his patience. He is refusing to heed. He's refusing to humble himself, and therefore each plague is getting a little more severe, Like a frog in a kettle, the temperature is being increased. The pressure is being ratcheted up notch after notch. And as Pharaoh will not relent, these plagues will only get worse. We began to see that last week with the biting flies beginning to create real injury. Now we see real death. Not the death of the people, but the death of their livestock. So first observation, the second cycle of plagues continues as the first did, only more severe. The second cycle of plagues continues as the first did, only more severe. So remember, the ten plagues are three sets of three that follow the same pattern and then end in the climactic tenth plague. We've already seen the first three. And now we're in the middle of the second cycle of three, the fifth plague. The first three began when Moses confronted Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. The second three began with Moses confronting Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. The first three continued when Moses appeared before Pharaoh with a demand and a warning. The second cycle now continues with Moses bringing to Pharaoh a demand. And a warning. The demand, let my people go that they may serve me. The warning, if you refuse to let them go and still hold them behind, the, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. And so this second cycle of three plagues is mirroring the first cycle of plagues. And if you put the passages side by side, you see the similarities. Second observation, the livestock of the Egyptians died. The livestock of the Egyptians died. At the appointed time, just as God had said, the domesticated animals of Egypt died. Now, it is difficult to express just how costly and devastating this fifth plague was. Uh, John Davis says, Such a plague... Would have had grave economic consequences on the land of Egypt. Oxen were depended upon for heavy labor in agriculture. Camels, donkeys, and horses were used largely for transportation. Cattle not only provided milk, but were very much an integral part of worship in the land of Egypt. The economic losses on this occasion must have affected Pharaoh greatly because he kept large numbers of cattle under his control, end quote. So maybe we don't feel this as much because we no longer live in um, an agrarian agricultural society, but to lose these animals was very much to put the lives of the Egyptians at risk. These people needed these animals to live. Now, I don't think that every animal in egypt was killed god is still being compassionate and he is holding back the full fury of his wrath against sin i don't think he even killed all the farm animals because when we come to the seventh plague and when we come to the tenth plague we're going to see that there is still livestock in egypt so how do we how do we deal with that how does the fifth plague kill the livestock and then we get to the seventh plague and the tenth plague and there's still livestock in egypt well One obvious answer would be the Egyptians could have just taken the livestock from the Israelites, right? Their livestock wasn't touched, so they very much could have done that. The other thing to remember is that this is the moment in history where Egypt has the largest kingdom of the entire history of Egypt. Um, the, the boundaries of G- Egypt will never grow larger than they are at this time. There are hundreds of kingdoms that owe tribute to Egypt. And so they very much could have confiscated the livestock of other nations and brought them in in response to this plague. But another explanation, and, and I think this is likely, is that the word all in this plague means the same thing that it means Scores of places in the Old Testament, which is that it means all kinds. Uh, In other words, I think what this plague is saying is that all kinds of livestock in Egypt were struck down. Not necessarily every particular animal. As God had declared through Moses, it was horses and donkeys and camels and flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. There was no group of animals that was spared from this plague. Well, third observation, this plague was a miracle and not merely a natural phenomenon. It was a miracle and not merely a natural phenomenon. We discussed at the beginning of this study that there have been some scientists and others who have tried to explain each of these plagues away as a natural occurrence. And often the tale is told that there was anthrax, from the dying frogs that was then transported to the animals by the biting insects and that that's what killed these animals. Whether there is anything to that or not, we simply cannot deny that this Bible that we have before us records for us the hand of God at work in this plague. This is a miraculous act. We're told in verse 3, this is the hand of the Lord falling upon Egypt. We are told in verse 6 that the Lord did this thing seeming to indicate a direct act of God in striking down these animals. Moreover, the natural explanations cannot explain why the livestock of the Egyptians died, but the livestock of the Israelites lived. Why would they have lived if this was as some have said? Only the sovereign will of God can explain why the Israelites were untouched. As we saw last time, this is God protecting his people. This is God declaring to Egypt and the rest of the world that his people are precious to him. To mess with them is to mess with him. And Egypt is learning that lesson the hard way. Fourth observation. Very quick. Pharaoh sent an investigative team to Goshen, G-O-S-H-E-N, to Goshen, to see if God's word was true. In other words, rather than taking God's word on the matter, Pharaoh actually sends some of his men to the land of Goshen, where the Israelites are being held captive, to spy out for themselves. Have the livestock of the Israelites been killed? And sure enough, the men report back to Pharaoh that not a dead animal could be found within the land of Goshen. Fifth observation, Pharaoh's heart was hardened hardened despite the increasing plagues despite the mounting evidence that pharaoh is no match for god and that pharaoh cannot win his heart is hardened and he will not relent last time we were told that pharaoh hardened his heart that pharaoh was the active agent this time we're told that his heart was hardened pharaoh was passive and god is the active agent God is hardening Pharaoh's heart because he has a plan he is working out. But God's sovereignty doesn't change Pharaoh's responsibility. Pharaoh is choosing to harden his heart and to be stubborn just as God ordained. You say, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh or God? And the answer is yes, (laughs) both of them are at work. Now, let me remind you that every one of these plagues is a demonstration by the true God that he and he alone has power over some aspect of nature that some Egyptian god was thought to control. And so as we've said, with each plague, God is dethroning the Egyptian gods. He's proving that he is the sovereign one who controls what they were thought to control. So what Egyptian god is being revealed as a fraud in this plague? We could mention several. The Egyptian god of war, Montu was said to take the shape of a great bull called Bucus. Um, Nevis an Egyptian god worshiped at the great cult city heliopolis was said to be a living bull and at a special temple there a bull would be taken inside the temple and worshiped and then priests would watch the motions of the bull to see what Minerva was saying they they treated the bull as an oracle so if the bull went left it meant one thing if the bull went right it meant another and so they they learned divine secrets and thought that they received prophecy from the actions of of this, of this bull. The truth is, cattle were about as sacred for the Egyptians as they are today for Hindus in India. Uh, the great Egyptian gods, Ta and Re were sometimes said to take the form of bulls. In the Egyptian city of Memphis, a bull was kept in a sacred space, and he was said to be the incarnation of the god Apis. And when that bull died, a huge sacred burial ceremony would take place. Well, certainly this plague showed that Yahweh is more powerful than each one of those gods I've just mentioned. But perhaps hitting closest to home was how this plague revealed the weakness of the Egyptian goddess Hathor. Hathor. She was one of the oldest deities of Egypt, worshipped from the most ancient of times. And if these plagues are attacking the most important gods and goddesses of Egypt, as I think they are, then Hathor definitely fits the bill. She was the goddess of love, the goddess of music, the goddess of fertility and dance. She was the Aphrodite of ancient Egypt. And she was pictured wearing a headdress with the sun above her head, couched between two cow horns. And so she was known as the cow goddess. Now often when we think of cows, we think of milk and how farmers will milk a cow's udders for milk. Well, Hathor was seen as the goddess of nourishment and particularly she was seen as the goddess who was given the responsibility to care for Pharaoh. She was the caretaker goddess of Pharaoh himself. She was to protect Pharaoh. She she was sometimes pictured as a cow suckling the Pharaoh for nourishment. So you see, this plague, in one sense, was a direct assault on Pharaoh's security. The very goddess in whom he supposedly trusted to care for him could not stop the death of her own kind. The animals around Pharaoh are all dying. What does that say about his great protector, the cow goddess? And so God is leaving Pharaoh exposed and vulnerable. And he's revealing that Pharaoh has nowhere to run for safety, nowhere to run for refuge. Now, what is the prophetic lesson of this plague, right? The book of Revelation draws from these plagues to help us understand what God is doing in these last days. And just as these plagues were smaller judgments that increased with each one, all leading to a climactic final judgment, so we live in a day in which plagues are upon this earth, warning us of a greater judgment to come. Well, certainly, one of the judgments of God that we see upon our world today is judgment upon livestock. Judgment upon livestock. Think back 30 years to 1985. That was the year that farmers in England started detecting a problem with their cows. Ryken says some of their cattle were sick. And as they weakened physically, they also deteriorated mentally. The infected cattle behaved erratically. They became either fearful or aggressive. They seemed to be going mad, which is how the disease got its name. Mad cow disease. The last stages of mad cow disease were frightening. Cattle staggered around the farm until finally they just stumbled to the ground and died. But that disease got even scarier in 1995 when doctors discovered that it had spread to humans. Individuals who had eaten contaminated beef began to lose their minds. Their brain tissue was gradually eaten away until it began to resemble a sponge. Reichen says, since there was no treatment and no cure, mad cow disease started a panic across Europe, becoming one of the most terrifying plagues of postmodern times. See, because most of us don't live on farms, we often forget how our very lives depend on the produce and livestock that farmers raise for us. And those who work with livestock know that there have been a number of dangerous diseases throughout history, but especially in recent years, that they have to be constantly wary of. Um, if you want to frighten yourself, go home, get on Google, click on the news part of Google, and then type in livestock disease and see what's been in the news around the world about diseases of livestock. Um, I read about an outbreak of foot and mouth disease among the livestock of South Korea. I saw Australia's warning that if that disease were to spread to their country, it will cost them $52 billion to combat it. I read about swine flu. I read about avian flu. All of these things were a reminder to us that we live in a world under God's judgment. But these reminders are merciful reminders. They are intended to call us to repentance. They help us to recognize that a great day of judgment is coming. And it's not just some fanciful myth, but something that we can see shadows of right here, right now. I think if the Apostle Paul were with us in this room tonight, he might say something similar to us as what he said in Romans 2. Do you suppose, O man There are any of us in this room tonight who are lost, don't presume on the kindness of God. Repent and turn to Christ. Th- these moments that you have on earth are precious moments, and if God let everything on this earth just be hunky-dory and great, you wouldn't fear a judgment to come, and you wouldn't repent, and you wouldn't turn to Christ. God brings minor plagues on this earth. I say minor. The earthquake in Nepal that just took place yesterday Hundreds, perhaps thousands dead. These things are meant to wake us up. The shadows of a greater judgment to come. Will we repent before it's too late? Do you remember what Jesus said when the people approached Him and asked Him what He thought about those 18 people who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? And they, I don't know what they expected Jesus to say, but Jesus replied, unless you repent, you will all likewise Perish. Every time you see a plague of any kind in our world today, that's what you should say to yourself. And if I am not a repenter, I will likewise perish. Let me run to Christ and find my salvation in Him. That leads us to the fifth purpose of these plagues. As we study the ten plagues, we're noting ten purposes. Um, We've already seen how they show the supremacy of God over all false deities. We've seen how they show that in reality there's only one true God. We've seen how these plagues display the awesome power of God. We've seen how these plagues reveal God's protection of his people. And the fifth purpose of these plagues is an obvious one, but one that needs to be stated. These plagues were God's punishment of the Egyptians for their sin. Again, these plagues were God's punishment of the Egyptians for their sin. Were they more than that? Absolutely. But they were not less than that. These plagues were punishments from God. Pharaoh himself after the eighth plague, will finally acknowledge that he is deserving of these punishments. In Exodus 10, verse 16, we will hear Pharaoh say to Moses and Aaron, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. What makes this truth so hard to swallow is that in our modern age, we live in a day when all punishment is supposed to be restorative. We send criminals to jail, and the goal is supposed to be that they are being restored, rehabilitated, right? In order to rejoin society. That's the question they hear at their parole hearings, right? Do you believe you've been restored? Do you believe you've been rehabilitated, Because of modern psychology, America rejects the notion that people are inherently wicked, but assumes that if someone does something wrong, it must be because they're sick in some way. Something has gone wrong with them, and thus modern punishment is restorative. How can we make this person whole again? But in the Bible, we learn that there is a totally different kind of punishment. This punishment isn't restorative. It's retributive. Everybody say retributive. Retributive. This is not a punishment that's meant to bring you to restoration. This is a punishment being poured out on you because you deserve it, and justice demands it. This is a kind of punishment that you receive because it's right that you receive it. Now, praise God, we've been rescued from all retributive punishment by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But God was working through these plagues, yes, to declare to Pharaoh and the Egyptians their need for repentance. And in that way, these plagues were in a sense restorative. They're a call for the people of Egypt to repent. But in another way, God is pouring out these plagues on Egypt for the simple truth that they deserved them and that it was right that they be judged for their sin. Do you remember back when we started this study and we were looking at Egypt's cruel treatment of the Israelites, how the load was being increased, how the people were being beaten and whipped and how they were crying out to God and it seemed like God wouldn't hear and they're just being struck down and I said to you as a church, remember this when we are in the midst of the plagues. If you don't remember it, you'll start thinking, what a cruel God. No, not a cruel God. A just God who has watched patiently for 400 years while His people were beaten down, struck down, oppressed, and they cried out to Him. Many of them went their whole lives crying out for deliverance and dying and never seeing the answer come. And now God is answering their prayer. And He is bringing judgment. Why? Because it's right. If I may be so blunt... Do you understand what justice demands of you? Justice demands that you be punished in hell forever. Justice demands that we be tormented forever. That's what I deserve. This is what justice owes me. Hell to pay. God's judgment on those who are in hell is not restorative. They will never be restored. God's judgment on sinners in hell is entirely retributive. It's just right. You say, how can this be? I say, how can it not be? Have you not treated the Almighty who created you and who is worthy of all your love and obedience with contempt and with disrespect? Have you not treated those people around you who bear the very image of God with bitterness and cruelty and selfishness? If you rightly understand the value of God and you understand the depth of your sin, the question that you will have will not be, How can God punish me in hell? The question will be, How can He possibly not? How is it that He lets sinners live on this earth even one more second? The Bible doesn't marvel at the fact that God punishes people in hell. The Bible marvels at the fact that He's so patient that He gives us a time to repent. Surely God would never punish someone like me for all eternity. That's so extreme, right? God's too good to do that. And I would reply... Says who? Who says that hell is extreme? By what measure do you determine that your sins do not deserve hell? Because the Bible presents the judgments of God as always right and always fair. There is no unfairness in God. Jonathan Edwards answered objections like this this way. Unbeliever? Since you have never really had any real love towards God in your heart, why should you expect Him to have any love towards you on the last day? Since you have slighted God and disregarded God again and again and again, why should He not disregard you on the last day? Why do you act as if God is obligated to show you mercy on the last day when you're being so ungrateful for the mercies He's showing you this moment? Unbeliever, you have chosen to walk the path of Satan by living in rebellion against God, throwing off his commands and living as you as you will. Is it not right that God would then give you the same punishment as Satan? And whose steps you were following. Think about how often God has called you to repentance and you have refused Think about how his Bible sits in your house full of pleas from God to you calling you to peace and salvation in Jesus Christ and yet you continue to reject that call. Do you then expect God to be obligated to hear your cries from hell? Have you not utterly cast off God's Son Jesus Christ refusing to submit to Him refusing to follow Him is it therefore not right for God to cast you off? If you have set yourself against God, is it not right for God to set himself against you? Mount Hermon, I'll say it again. Today is the day of salvation. Do not be hard-hearted like Pharaoh, refusing to learn the lesson of the judgments of God. All around us is evidence of the great day of judgment to come. The very Bible that we hold in our hands tells us that all men are appointed once to die and then the judgment. Are you ready? Kids, are you ready for that day? Adults, are you ready? Today could be your dying day. Would it be also the day that you entered into heaven or the day that you entered into hell? God is gracious. Jesus Christ is the door. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need not fear the judgments of God. But we can live with Him as our Father forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.